Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that tries to spread the word about trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have a conversation with our transport expert and observer of all things cultural, Brian Smith, about three subjects. A historic Bentley and taking your children around in a vintage or veteran car. Car design and practicality. Has Tesla gone wrong in both these areas with their Cybertruck? And finally, the Australian Army is making cardboard drones. What can the car industry, particularly from the past, offer in terms of practical advice? For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or look up the socials with Cars Transport Culture. This program was first broadcast on the 9th of September 2023. Just before some feedback from our social media posts, you heard in the introduction that we will be talking to Brian Smith, including the story of the Australian Army developing a cardboard drone. Bruce Potter, the morning presenter on our home station, quick as a flash, said the Army already has cardboard drones. They're called generals. This is Overdrive across Australia. Some feedback on our social media posts, Facebook, Instagram, podcasts and YouTube. Look for Cars Transport Culture. Our resident photographer and artist Dean Oliver posted some of his historic photos from an Amaru Park race meeting in 1973. Vehicles included a Falcon, a Charger, a couple of Porsches, a Tirana and a swagger of Minis, which brought a comment from Les Dwy, who said, I think that is my lightweight Mini. Unfortunately, the picture had one Mini in the foreground that had rolled over, with only its rear wheels visible, pointing skywards. I asked Les if this was his car. He emphatically said no. All he knew was that it was a Clubman number 61 that was a diamond white with a purple stripe. I wonder if the owner will identify themselves. Les was honest enough to admit that he did have an accident in a previous event in his series production Mini Cooper S. He also reflected that it was 40 years ago, and he remembered that he was a lot thinner there. But the comment I can't go past was from Kim Ferrier, who said of the crashed Mini, one more brick in the wall. But the talk of the old racing circuit at Amaru Park brought out a flood of stories from our colleagues here at Overdrive. Fred said that he had raced his Datsun 1600 there a couple of times and that the circuit struck him as being a bit like a mini Bathurst where you could go horribly wrong in a big way in a number of places. But Evan had the most spectacular story. He said, I rolled an Alpha Sud there in 1961 six times, was in hospital for a week, concentrated more on being an official after that. It happened on Honda Corner as the front strut collapsed. And our traffic engineering expert, Alan, who we know to be very accurate and precise, said, My outings at Amaru were not as exciting as others. He went on the hill climb in his E.H. Holden, the Dirk circuit in his L.J. Tirana, and finally main circuit for a Peter Werrett advanced driver training day. Sounds like a line from the movie The Castle. He did say that the loop was a double apex corner, very tricky and downhill, 
so speed was always increasing. Clearly, this reminiscing brings up stories that perhaps you should consider not telling your children. It reminds me of the time when we took one of our interns from Macquarie University to the Shannon's Classic, and she took along her father, and he spent most of the time identifying the old cars he once owned and the speeds and other exploits that he got up to. This is Overdrive across Australia. Our resonant mechanical expert, Fred Brain, and I went to the Sedives Cars and Coffee event that they hold once a month on a Sunday morning at the local showground. Car owners from near and far bring along their veteran, vintage and classic cars, and some even bring along fairly new cars, but only if they have something that makes them especially interesting. One of the vehicles there was a beautifully restored 1925 supercharged Bentley. I couldn't find the owner, but I found Robert, whose father had had a 1923 Bentley, very similar, so I asked him what it was like owning such a lovely vehicle. We're standing beside what is probably a 1925 Bentley or so, but a colleague here says uh, that it is familiar territory to you. That's correct, yes. My father-in-law owned a very similar one some years ago. But it wasn't the supercharged, not that I'm diminishing your experience. No, no, it was the the standard, what they call a speed model, um, three-litre Bentley. So I think there were a few different models. There was four-and-a-half-litre, and and if if I'm correct, this one's the supercharged one, and I believe there's only one in Australia of that model. And you got to drive your father-in-law's car? I did, yeah, quite a few occasions, um, one being his his other daughter's wedding. And how did you end up driving that there? Well, he had a few too many drinks, so I was was a designated driver on the way home, and it was pouring with rain and trying to drive with very poor windscreen wipers, and um, pouring rain through Melbourne at night was uh, an interesting experience. Gear changing? Yeah, very difficult. Uh, double to clutch through each gear and you've got to get the revs right, otherwise they crunch very noisily. And I presume at night in the rain that just adds another dimension to the difficulty. Yes, that's correct. And whilst they're very big headlights, they're not very powerful. <laughs> size is not everything and I think uh, your daughters also had to get a ride in that yes when they were young um, almost babies really Um, I've got three children so my son and two daughters they were dragged around by their grandfather uh, in the back of the Bentley to every single occasion that he could he could think of to take them to (laughs) and they remember that well it's the sort of car you could take them to their former in too. Ab- absolutely, but unfortunately he lived in Melbourne, we live in Sydney, so it didn't, didn't work out and the, he and the car were gone by the time these ones were old enough to go to their, their formals. So, yeah. Thanks very much. No problem, my pleasure. When he mentioned that his two daughters used to be passengers in the back seat and that they were also at this event, it was essential then that I interview the young ladies as well. They were very bright, personable and well presented. One was a little shy, but she revealed something that showed us that riding in the Bentley was very close to her heart. Can I ask your first name? Kelly. And? Isabella. So you're one of the daughters that rode in the back of the Bentley, were you? Yes, I was. And did you feel regal? 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. It felt very uh, lucky, but also just, yeah, very cool. <laughs> Did you tell the kids at school? Oh, definitely. Always, always. Oh, okay. Brought in photos as well. Okay. Is, <laughs> is that the one car that you were prepared to let your parents drive you to school in? Oh, no. No, <laughs> definitely not. Dad also used to have a Austin Healey, oh, so that was really? very cool too. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that was good to arrive, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah okay. definitely. But no, the Bentley was, um, it was really nice. It felt like a more of a family car as well because oh, of really? the way that our grandfather used it. Yeah. And you knew him? Yes. Yeah. And he loved the car? Oh, he loved it. He loved it so much. Really? I think he had it for, gosh, years and years. <laughs> okay. You had a similar experience? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> okay. And did you ride in it together? Yeah. No, I used to mimic the sounds, like sing along with the car. <laughs> I thought that was just for young lads. You, you did that as well. Yeah. Can you still do it now? <laughs> I do I'm going to hear it and then I sing along with it. Have a go. <laughs> I thought you might mi uh, mimic the gear changes to it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe too young to yeah. recognise at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> didn't know what manual was really. Yeah, yeah. And they would crunch if you didn't get them right. Yeah. Okay. That's a, um, one way. Yes. If Dad was driving, of yeah. course, it would have looked elegant until he crunched the gears. Yeah. And that might have, might have taken away some yeah. of the... Yes. Yeah. yeah, every time it was like the... Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Lovely Thank to meet right. you. Thank you. <laughs> young ladies who love a veteran car to the point that one of them learns to make the exhaust noise from the engine, and parents who introduce their children to the joys of classic motoring are wonderful subjects that our good friend Brian Smith, a motoring and transport expert, is well qualified to comment on. G'day, David. How are you? That's a lovely story. <laughs> she was very shy, right? and she said, oh, I don't think I can talk, all right. But then she sort of... After I spoke to her sister for a while, she sort of said, oh, oh, by the way, I learnt to make the noise of the Bentley. Well, of course, I just thought that was wonderful. If I had have been 40 or more years younger, that would have been the girl of my dreams. <laughs> it's uh, It has to be distinctive uh, engine note, though, doesn't it, David? Nobody's practising their Nissan Pulsar sound. <laughs> Although I, I do find that you know, I have an electric car, as you know, and they, have a, they give off a sort of a, a Jetson-style sound that's Quite a lot of fun to to mimic, but uh, yeah, most most cars, apart from perhaps turbocharged cars with waste gates, <laughs> you know, and and the sort of popping backfiring of you know high performance cars. Otherwise, uh, I think you'd have to reach back towards the sort of Ferraris and Bentleys and cars with a distinct roar, that sort of um, Spitfire Merlin engine, <laughs> Rolls Royce Merlin engine kind of sound that. I imagine most people would be challenged to to mimic. It's an interesting point you raised about those that are in the extreme because it's also a wonderful awareness of around you when you don't have to be blasted into a realisation of what's happening by uh, Harley Davidson going by, but that you pick up sounds along the way as part of everyday life. I tell you who used to do that, and that was Peter Ustinov. And he was a great mimic of people and sounds. And it shows an awareness, I think, of things around you, which may not be as stridently obvious to other people. You're right, David. And sound matters, particularly in sort of automotive terms, doesn't it? Because it's part of expressing the passion or having their passion expressed. 
And so, uh, you know, you mentioned Harley Davidson, and that's a company that has attempted to, or uh, probably has by now, trademark yes. the sound of their motorcycles. Uh, Ducati motorbikes had a very distinctive sound that um, you could differentiate from many other motorbikes at the time. So, yeah, sound is very important. So, that, again, we talked just previously about the, the sort of turbo wastegate and I think there's even, you know, you can attempt to have that sound at a G car even if you don't have a turbo wastegate. And we've talked, haven't we, about various cars and motorbikes, possibly electric ones, that uh, you know, manufacturers are talking about giving them a sound, hmm. you know, uh, making it sound more like a Formula One car than a Formula electric car. You know the car that a sound expert claimed to be one of the best sounds, and that was a Triumph Stag. Oh, what a wonderful car. They're one of my dream cars when I was a kid, Oh, the Triumph Stag. We're going to talk about that in another subject matter because while they were aesthetically pleasing, there was certain difficulties of ownership. <laughs> they required a lot of commitment, didn't they, David, to, to <laughs> I've owned an English car. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've come across quite a number of times where a family – have taken their young children around in a very old car. Our good friend David Berthon, who is a motoring journalist and broadcaster, took his seven- and nine-year-old daughters, I think it was, around the UK and Europe in a 1905 scat. You might say that's child cruelty in that, yet <laughs> it created great opportunities. One, he, he went to the pub for a dinner. A guy came in and said, is that your scat out there? And he said, yes. Well, I'm the president of the Scottish someone car club. Why don't you come back to my castle when we have a, uh, have a few after-dinner drinks? Castle. There's a message there, Brian, <laughs> that you get to meet a whole range of other people, and, and we got to meet Robert and his daughter. So I think that was a, a lovely opportunity. Well, David, I think certainly that that recording that you have should be uh, preserved for posterity in the same way that ancient languages are preserved, because the, the sound of that car may only be expressed by a human voice that one time, David. It, it could be a very fragile record. I couldn't get her to do her imitation, but maybe I will pursue that in interviews in the future. You're listening to Overdrive. While we're talking about cars and design, and we talked about the stag, it raises the point about the recent reports about the Tesla Cybertruck. How good does the outward design of a car, be it not necessarily elegant, but certainly distinctive, how important is that if the design itself is significantly compromised in its functionality? And this has come up in terms of the Cybertruck, which was promised in 2021, then 2022, not to arrive yet. So it came to a point that apparently Elon Musk went out in the car and actually over roads. And what he found was that the straight line body that he's put on it Forget whether you like the looks of it. The great problem of it is that being made of a clean metal as well, it meant that any sort of mismatch, any movement in it made the body look like it had been put together badly. Misaligned doors and even uneven surfaces made the car look 
and I quote a report, wobbly, weird, and very unlike the clean-angled renders Tesla has presented over the years. So here you have a car that there are probably equal number of people that hate it, but have also ordered, there are other people that have ordered it, yet its looks alone may, in operation, cause it to fall in a heap. It's an amazing state that they've got themselves into, I think, David at Tesla. Um, if you go back and look at the the historic, awful design example, it's the Ford Edsel. Now, the Edsel was just an ugly car, but it was totally functional. I think the main problem with the, the Cybertruck is it's both ugly and non-functional. And I, I think the idea that was clearly developed by Elon Musk with no experience of how to make a car... Mm massive challenge of trying to to realize his design and, and realize that it was very, very difficult to manufacture. And you, you mentioned these these sort of straight panels. Well, a curve in a panel provides rigidity. And so one of the challenges he has is these flat panels don't have the rigidity of a curve panel. And so any misalignment is so obvious. And in, indeed, one of the challenges that I think people have not yet sort of experienced here would be sound. You're creating a giant reverberating box, a bit like a guitar, where I think, you know, it's going to require a lot of, uh, of sound deadening. But, but yeah, I think, I think David, the, the form and function thing is very important because um, I suspect the function of the vehicle is going to be very highly compromised by its form. With very straight panels, you'd get a wobble board. Yes. He could get Rolf Harris to – oh, no, sorry. <laughs> yes, let's not mention Rolf. Can you imagine it on corrugated roads in in outback New South Wales? There was a time that Lexus really brought it on. They had an ad where they put a car on its side and rolled a marble down the crack between the door and the back of the car or or any of those uh, join points and found that it was incredibly consistent. And that was its great selling point. It had no value to it really other than he knew the door was always going to shut and shut properly but it didn't have aerodynamics or anything to it but it just showed the attention to detail and the well-made yes of the maker and the designer elon musk i believe is now talking about or certainly people that have looked at it the need to design it to sub 10 micron accuracy Look, nothing in a car on the body is sub-10 microns, David. You Doors have to move, panels have to join, but they don't join to like a NASA spaceship tolerances, right? Mm. What you want, though, you don't want no seam or join. You'd like the join to be even. Yes. And for the panels to line up, and, and most of the photos I've seen of of the Cybertruck have highlighted these great gaps or um, varying widths, varying distances of part of the panels and, and doors not aligning with bodies so that you have a sort of a zigzag arrangement going on. You have thermal expansion and contraction of vehicles. So it's all very well to try and claim it even out of the manufacturing plant. It's also what it's going to look like on the road. And I think that's part of the, the problem as well. And I think he's highlighted that that comment about submicron level tolerances has highlighted that he he doesn't know how to make a car like the car designer and a car maker, you know, understand how to put a vehicle together and and how it works. And I think he's he, his sort of demands are the demands of someone who really isn't well versed in manufacture or design. 
It's been the conflict, of course, even within uh, well-established car manufacturing between marketing and design and manufacturing. It's it, it has always been a debate, but you have to have a process, a system, and perhaps a history of being able to work that out. Because if you can't, then you fall in heap. But there have been some cars that are far more fashion over function, but have still done well. I go back to the Jaguar XK, first shown to the public in the 1948 London Motor Show, I think. And it was a rush job, but it was there to demonstrate the six-cylinder engine, but it looked great as well. The cabin space was, well, cramped, particularly for the driver, and certainly the steering wheel distance to the driver was very short. But the car had enough elegance and image to survive. And it, it, it was also being built by a company that had been around for quite a number of years. Needless to say, there are some of those elements that aren't with Tesla at this time. It reminds me a bit of the DeLorean, David, ah. which I, I consider to be more of a like a a tech demonstration than than a like a production car, even though it became a production car for a short period of time. But the, the, the shape, the kind of um, the angles, the look that it's going for, I guess, is um, is reminiscent of the DeLorean, and and I, I suspect the Cybertruck will, you know, become a historically legendary lemon um you know if it's ever produced right like we talk about you know failing well you know it's been three or four years that people have placed orders for this thing and been promised it within the next few months i I doubt that there's going to be any really rolling off a production line even this year you mentioned the triumph stag that came up in conversation now it might look good and might even be reasonable in the short term, but you can then find some cars that give you angst over the longer term. If you meet a Triumph Stag owner driver, make sure you keep the conversation on distinctive looks and sound of the car <laughs> and don't under any circumstance and mention replacing the battery. <laughs> because you have to dismantle the hydraulics for the steering system to get to replace the battery, I believe. Now, that, that David, is design. <laughs> it's all very well to sit behind a desk and theorise about all that is needed and how it will all work, but it's out in the real world that you can get many variations. There can be uh, distinctive cars. The 1976 Aston Martin Lagonda, very futuristic link, a huge wedge shape. Do you remember the big, long wedge yeah. bonnet? As a young kid, I thought, wow, that's really adventurous, uh, which perhaps is a bit like the <laughs> Yes Minister line, but, but nonetheless. It has, I believe, Wiki has uh, uh, documented that Time magazine included it in its 50 worst cars of all, described, of all time, describing its mechanical as a catastrophe with electronics that would be impressive if they worked. This is why the uh, Japanese car market was successful, David, because the uh, English car market was so diabolical. You're listening to Overdrive. Let's move on to our final subject. In the war in the Ukraine... Apparently, the Australian Army Defence is providing some drones as backup. 
but they have a cardboard exterior. Now, they're not a drone like a helicopter. They're a drone like a small plane, toy plane. But apparently this is turning out to be very, very good for the simple reason that it is remarkably cheap. It's disposable in many ways. It may not be as detectable via radar, although the batteries inside still are. But it's a wonderful thing that costs, I believe, about $5,300 each in Australia. I think I haven't done the comparison, but I think that's a bit cheaper than a submarine. <laughs> a Lego one. <laughs> can do 120 kilometres and, and it sends back information in real time. So if it crashes and that, it may still get some surveillance information. They attacked an airfield in Kursk a blast the other day uh, in Russia, Western Russia, and caused damage to a MiG-29, four SU-30 fighter jets, two Panster anti-aircraft missile launchers, gun systems. I mean, it's pretty clever stuff, isn't it? Return on investment, David. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think there are some car manufacturers that might well be able to help. They're Morgan. Morgan. I was <laughs> – so let's get some three-ply drones going. And, of course, taxis know how to put something together that may not be particularly elegant, but at least it uh, it gets you there, even if even if it crashes on the way. The Russians, of course, uh, invented the larder, David. So <laughs> yeah. I know about primitive systems. You know our very own hero, Sir Charles Kingsford Smith, most known for exploits in aeroplanes. He also proposed to build a car it's going to be called the Australian, and it was going to be made from uh, the exterior marine plywood. Beautiful. At least not paper mache, David. It's, uh, I, I can imagine how the, the marine, the three-ply would look after a couple of seasons, David. The nice bulges and lacquer coming off. A lot of the car designers of the classic car period came out of the Second World War. Norman Dewis from Jaguar, for example was uh, a person who, during the war, had sat as an observer in a cold little bubble of a thing on top of a bomber or something where the panels didn't fit properly and air got in. In fact, he was actually retired after getting rather sick from it. Well, that was a perfect introduction into the motoring world, wasn't it? The English motoring, the gaps and drafts. Yeah, yeah. Pan panels yeah. that don't fit. Well, look, even look at as recently as World War Two. you know, there were aeroplanes made from timber hmm. uh, operating. The the Mosquito, famously, you know, the Wooden Wonder, it was called. It was made of plywood and um, even the Hurricane that fought in the Battle of Britain, you know, this, the Spitfire was made out of metal, but the Hurricane had lots and lots of wood. And so um, I love the idea that as technology advances and we're using more and more sort of sophisticated materials, there's this kind of vacuum behind that gets filled by the more primitive technology and that idea that that you know we've we've got anti-aircraft systems and radars and things and and here's a a cardboard plane that's to defeat that uh, i can't remember who it was that said that um you know they didn't know what world war 3 would be fought with but world war 4 would be fought with sticks <laughs> because and i suspect that there may even be sticks involved in world war 3 as well the early planes had timber frames, maybe even metal frames, but then some canvas as well. Canvas, yes, dope. Remember making model planes, David? Yes, yes. Dope on the canvas to stiffen it and shrink it. Canvas wasn't very good in wet weather, I believe. Now, 
a cardboard with a wax cardboard can actually be very good in wet weather. Now, does that get us back that perhaps children had a mystical understanding about loving the boxes that their toys came in? Yeah. Because it was the cardboard and that that had that desire and durability and who cares if you roll it over and break it or that. Cardboard's wonderful, David. I, I, a couple of years ago or three years ago or so, I, I made a, a suit of armour for my son out of cardboard, just cut and, and tape and painted it and and that, uh, you know, articulated in the way that a suit of armour did and a helmet and a shield. And okay. It was fabulous fun, the, the pair of us. At home, the real test is, was he prepared to be seen outside in it? <laughs> Only in the backyard, David. <laughs> I think you're a very well-intended dad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Brian. Well, a couple of stories there, quite a few stories. Uh, Lovely to talk to you. We will catch up again at a later date. Thanks for your time. Thanks a million, David. And that's Brian Smith, our occasional reporter. We should have him on more often if I could just get my act together. And he is a transport planner of excellence and also one that has an acerbic look at the world around us. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community... Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or link to the socials and podcasts by looking up the title Cars Transport Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.